Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Membership Feed. Episode 5, The Great Expansion, Part 1. Last time out, we saw the opening years of Moctezuma I's reign, a very significant moment in the formation of the Aztec identity. Under the rule of its coatl, the Aztecs had thrown off their Tepaneca overlords to become masters of the Mexican Valley. Moctezuma began a war against the neighbouring power of Chalco, a war which would be a tremendous undertaking. But, as we saw, it was cut short due to the Great Hunger. A series of bad frost and late rains had led to years of famine, and life in central Mexico had come to a standing stop. Staying alive was the priority. Other things, such as civilization, began to crumble. But eventually, the rains did come, food was grown, and the Aztecs we are dealing with now are different to the ones we've previously worked with. This was when the constant warfare began, such as the War of Flowers, against the cities of the Puebla to Tlaxla Valley, and the practice of human sacrifice shifted from individual sacrifice to the mass offerings we're more familiar with. There was a need to get more victims for the sacrifices than the Puebla Tlaxcala Valley could supply, and so what began in 1458 was the Great Expansion. This is, well, strange. Moctezuma had cut his teeth in the wars against the Tepaneca, but it was now, as he entered his 60s, that he began his great campaigns. It's not very often you see the militant founders of great expansionist empires only get going in their 60s. War is a young man's game. The empire was already quite large, the largest the region had seen in living memory, controlling the Mexican valley and the neighbouring people, but, as I say, the Great Famine changed everything. When the famine hit the inland plateau, it was the low-lying area by the Mexican coast that the starving Aztecs fled to. This area was completely unaffected. I've made the point previously that Mexico is a very large country, and, as such, it should be expected that there is great climatic variation. There are dry areas, such as the Valley of Mexico, and fertile areas, such as the Gulf Coast. What is less obvious is the suddenness of the transformation. If you are in Mexico City, the old Tenochtitlan, and you drive out of the city east on the Mexican Federal Highway 150, you will go through the other nearby valleys. You will skirt around the south of Texcoco, go by Tlaxcala and Puebla, then about 60 miles further along as you make your way towards Veracruz, you will hit Orizaba. You will be stunned. Within minutes, the landscape changes. Gone are the stony, arid wastes, replaced by lush vegetation. The mangrove groves of today weren't around in pre-Columbian times, but you will be struck by the sudden change in sounds because of the different bird songs, even a different smell. It will be like you have been teleported a world away, not that you've only travelled a couple of miles. 
it was in this direction that the Great Conquest would be launched. To the north, the central Mexican plateau extends across the entire country. This was the wilderness the Aztecs had left when they migrated into the valley in the first place. They weren't about to go back there. They could have pushed southwest towards the Pacific, but these lands were also dry and wouldn't be conquered until a generation later. No, the push was east, to the Atlantic, and the plains of the Gulf Coast. This, at least, is traditional logic. There were other reasons too, but these are a bit harder to access. Historians put the views of their own times into the histories they write, and as a product of the 20th and 21st centuries, I'm naturally drawn to material reasons. But the Aztecs had other motivations, which are difficult to assess. For instance, feathers were important in Aztec life. I'm not sure on the reasons for this, perhaps it was because they were considered exotic. Feathers were also significant in Aztec religion, we've talked about the significance of hummingbirds last time out, and Quetzalcoatl is Noatl for feathered serpent. In depictions of the Aztec nobility, they're always wearing feathers. It was quite a status symbol. The feathers in addition to the fine cloths and jewels of the region, seem to be as big a factor in the decision to expand eastward as having food. Sometimes understanding other societies is easy, but when you find out that social cohesion depends upon access to feathers, then that understanding is quite a bit trickier. Highlighting this is the initial thrust. Moctezuma didn't immediately move for the coast, instead moving to a centre of trade. There are other reasons for thinking that this was the primary reason, rather than seeking fresh supplies of food. In any of the peace agreements made after Moctezuma's conquests, food was not part of the deal. There was no transportation of maize. When I first mentioned the theory, the more observant of you will have noticed I said the traditional approach in scholarship was to look at the importance of the drive for food. This has shifted recently. It's been noted that when transporting food by pack animal, they oftentimes eat more food than they would transport, and so it would be unhelpful in such a scenario. I'm not entirely convinced by this argument. By the time of the Spanish conquest, a quarter of the food supply for the Valley of Mexico was coming from outside it. This has sometimes been downplayed in comparison to the number of other goods received as tribute, such as the number of limes which made their way to the Valley of Mexico, but enough food to feed a quarter of the population, some 50,000 people, is hardly a small matter. I'm also doubtful of some of the revisionist approaches to the famine. Some authors downplay the role of the famine, but this leads me to question why else Aztec expansion would stop for a decade. It would be pretty inexplicable unless the famine was as bad as we are told. So, Aztec forces started moving southeast towards Oaxaca, and the first real target was Cloistloaca, a key trade centre and master of its own mini-empire, 
which could be used as a beachhead for conquest of the region. The Aztecs began the campaign in meticulous fashion, gathering all the necessary materials for the march. It was a hard march, all done by foot with no pack animals, but they eventually arrived at Cloistloaca, and mounted such a ferocious attack that the city fell with relative ease. Say all you want about the Aztecs, but they were great warriors. Much of the population was killed, and the temple was burnt. This was highly symbolic. Much as demanding stone and wood for the construction of a temple was symbolic of demanding total submission, the destruction of a temple signalled the successful conclusion of the campaign. This was total victory. This wasn't to be the extermination of Cloistloaca. That wouldn't really do anything for the Aztecs, and a deal was struck which serves as an insightful example of their empire-building methods, in particular, the hands-off approach they used. The monarchy of the city was left intact, and they would still rule their people. They would just have to provide the Aztecs with tribute to be collected at 80-day intervals. There was an Aztec representative in the city, not to act as a governor, but to oversee the collection office, and an equivalent officer to oversee the arrival of tribute at Tenochtitlan. They didn't want to get bogged down in forcing their own people onto the local populations and learning how to rule them, the particular quirks of each region. A hands-off approach was so much easier, less stressful, less likely to produce local resistance, and still ensured that the tribute kept on rolling in. There would be feasting for the victorious army, and then they marched back home with the prisoners of war to sacrifice. With these conquests having been made, it was time for the push to the coast, inhabited by people known as the Totonac. Messengers were sent to a few settlements, asking for some large sea snails and some shells because Moctezuma was curious about them. One of these groups was ambushed before they even reached their destination. Forces were mustered, and the armies set out. The Totonacs made a very good effort, and the Aztecs did consider pulling back, but the ruler of Tlatelolco rallied allied forces and the region was conquered. And a similar process took place as before. The rulers could stay in charge, they would just have to pay tribute. But once the Aztec military left, they began to second-guess their decision. Did they really want to pay tribute to the Aztecs? Ah, oh, hell no. So they decided to kill the Aztec representatives. And when Moctezuma sent ambassadors to the capital, Kutashla, to see what the commotion was about, they were killed in a particularly brutal way. They were locked in a room with chilies, which were then ignited so they admitted fumes. The ambassadors suffocated. Following this, the bodies were then stuffed with straw and dressed finely, and a dinner was put on for them, and the Totonacs prostrated themselves before the bodies and asked why their guests weren't eating. Moctezuma was furious. Kutashla must be destroyed. Well, not literally, that wouldn't achieve anything. It was the tribute Moctezuma wanted. But the tribute must be exacted. Doesn't sound anywhere near as dramatic. 
Aztec armies were victorious once again, and then the Totonacs overthrew their leaders and made peace, saying they bore the Aztecs no ill will. New leaders were elected, double the tribute was demanded, and peace was achieved. There was then the question of what to do with the leaders. The Aztecs were very uneasy about killing lords because they were made in the likeness of the gods, as everybody knows, and it was only at the insistence of the Totonacs that they were killed and then flayed. This was very unusual. Interestingly, the common prisoners of war were not sacrificed. It says a lot about how little we know of Aztec culture, that we can't tell if this was because it was a way of showing gratitude for turning against their leaders, or if it was because they were not considered good enough an offering. When I've spoken before about the difficulties of understanding the Aztecs because we know what they did, but not why they did it, this is one of those times. So, the Aztecs now controlled all the way to the coast of the Gulf of Mexico, and we've covered two of the four campaigns in the Great Expansion of Moctezuma. This is where we'll halt for the moment. Thanks for listening. We'll move on to rounding up Moctezuma's reign next time out. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 